Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tanakh Talks Podcast. My name is Yaakov Beasley, and today we are dealing with one of the most pivotal stories in the Sefer Breshit in the book of Genesis, the story of Yaakov and how he acquires the blessings by subterfuge from his father Isaac. So many questions are raised here, the morality of what he does, the role of his mother, Rivka, Questions about Isaac too, is he unaware of what's happening in front of him, is he unaware of the true nature of his children as described in the text, what does Asaph have to do in all of this, all these questions we'll be dealing with today. This story presents some of the most difficult moral questions, it's raised every year on the WhatsApp group that we talk about these issues for Leva Torah, and the commentators present a variety of approaches, really very fascinating, from complete justification to indignation. So let's start looking at them. And I really want to suggest a couple ideas, at least possible ways to approach this. And then I'll give my own interpretation at the end. So the first one I find, which is interesting, is that there are commentators on the, that focus on the role of Rebecca Rivka, the mother. What is she doing? Why is she just not talking to Isaac? Why is she engaging in this deception, this subterfuge? And it's important for us to know at the beginning and at the outset, that Rivka is already told, that Rivka is already told at the beginning of the story, way back before the children are even born, by Omer Hashem Lan, God said to her, two nations are in your womb, two nations will separate from inside you. One kingdom will become mightier than the other. Virav Yavod Sayir, which is traditionally translated as the older will serve the younger which means Rivka has insider information, and it's not sure that she ever shares this information with Yitzchak, with Isaac, meaning that had the implication being had she only told her husband what was going on, there would have been no problems. In fact, this is the approach of the 19th century commentator, the Nitziv, in his commentator to Genesis 24:65, He describes the first meeting between Rebekah and Isaac when Rivka is on the camels and she sees this awesome figure of a man approaching, she falls off. And the Nasib explains why. From this point onward, the terror was fixed in her heart. And she was not with Isaac. She did not relate to him the way Sarah was with Abraham or Rachel Yaakov. When they had concerns, says the Nasib, these two women did not hesitate to speak forcefully in front of their husbands. This episode is a prelude to Parsha Toledot, our Parsha this week, where Yitzchak and Rivka had different opinions of her son, yet Rivka was unable to tell Yitzchak her view in clear terms. In other words, because of the chasm, perhaps the fear, who am I? I grew up with an idolatrous house of deceivers, and here's this great righteous man. Who am I to tell him that his judgment is wrong? Yet I know deceivers. I grew up with them. I know that what Esau is doing is, to his father, at least according to rabbinic tradition, is very crafty, it's clever, and it's misleading, And I, but I can't tell that to Isaac. So how do I get him to see, and how, and especially if the blessing is coming, how do I get him to um, not make the mistake? And therefore she engages in the whole dress-up Yaakov thing. This is this whole approach of the Nasiv. The Ramban gives an interesting discussion in chapter 27 about, you know, she, originally she didn't tell Yitzchak with prophecy for reasons of modesty. She went to God without asking Yitzchak's permission. At that point, she also did not want to tell him about it because she suspected, because of his great love for Esau, he still would want to give Yaakov a blessing, which is a fascinating comment. Perhaps he would have said, okay, fine. If Esau doesn't get one, Yaakov doesn't get one either. 
and Hashem will decide everything. And she knew because of this that Yaakov would be blessed with a full heart and desirous soul. And that's the first approach, really, it's to blame the mother. And Rivka's role here is debated. The one dissenting opinion I know about this in his fascinating work, Rabbi God Dishi, does this suggest that what Rivka is doing, she's trying to delay Yaakov as much as possible. She's trying to encourage him, but the encouragement is not real encouragement. If you look very carefully, she slowly bakes the bread and she sends him out. She has to bake the goat. She's clearly waiting a couple hours. And to suggest that she's trying to sway him not to do this, yet it's a difficult read of the text because why then would he, um, she suggest it in the first place? It's worth reading his book, though, Jacob's Family Dynamics by Rabbi Gadishi. It's a fascinating work. Now, the second approach is the one that says, well, that Isaac was just simply unaware of who Esau is. And this comes, of course, the chapter 25, verse 28 states, And Isaac loved Esau because inside Bethif, he put game in his mouth. Rivka loved Yaakov. Similarly, in the next verse, you know, and, and Rashi says, he brings the Targum, which is shot, the simple reading text. It, he put food for Isaac, who's giving Isaac the best hunt, the best meat. The Midrash, however, then Rashi brings, says that whose mouth is it beside Bafif? It's not into his mouth, meaning Isaac's mouth, but rather he was beside Bafif. He hunted with his mouth. Esau's mouth was doing the hunting. He would entrap him and deceive him with words, meaning he would ask him questions according to the Midrash, do I take tithes out of straw and salt, things that don't require it, but he was trying to appear much more religious than he actually was. This is, of course, consistent in rabbinic thought that Asaph is the worst person ever created on the planet. For example, Baba Batra in page 16b um, brings Rabbi Yochan who states, that wicked one Asaph, he committed five sins that day, referring to the day where the soup was transferred for the right of the firstborn. He had relations with a girl who was betrothed to another. He murdered someone, denied God's existence, denied the resurrection of the dead, spurned the birthright, and he brings textual proofs to each, even though this is such a drush. You know, Isaac's coming back, sorry, Asaph's coming back, and he's hungry, and all of a sudden he's being accused of five horrendous sins. This is the day Abraham dies, according to rabbinic tradition, and that's what causes him to blaspheme and deny the existence of God and leave the moral path. The Tanchuma really summarizes very quickly in Parsha Toldot, all the transgressions that God hates, they're all found with Esau. Rabbinic tradition has no sympathy for Esau. It's very, very harsh. It's really not in consonant with what the text says. However, once again, when you look at this question, was Isaac unaware of the nature of his son's behavior? You have to go back to the end of chapter 26. It states that Esau's 40 years old. He married Yehudit. Ironically, the name, the Jewish girl, the, the Yehudit, the daughter of Beri the Chitit, and Bosmat, the daughter of Elon the Chitit. He's marrying these Canaanite Hittite women. You know, these are not the best women. These are the women that disqualify you from having a part in the covenant. And they were a vexation of spirit to Yitzchak and to Rivka. So clearly Isaac knows what is going on. He has some inkling he has some level of knowledge that Esau is not the kid who's going to carry on the covenant. Now, the next Rashi, in the next verse, when Isaac was old, his eyes were too dim to see, something that reminds us of Eli, the Kohen Gadol, the final Kohen Gadol, the final high priest of the sanctuary before it's destroyed. He's, 
His eyes were dim, he could not see, and he was unaware of, as it, and the implication is he was unaware of the behavior of his two sons, Chofni and Pinchas, and all the wicked things that they were doing, and why they deserved to be killed until the man of God pointed it out towards him. Rashi brings the Midrashic tradition that why, of course, can Isaac not see? Because of all the smoky incense for idolatry that Esau's wives were burning, or another approach which I find fascinating on a metaphorical, poetic level, that when Isaac was bound on the altar, according to rabbinic tradition, and his father is about to slaughter him, the angels are above crying and the tears go into his eyes. Perhaps meaning that Isaac sees things with an angel's eyes. What does it mean to see things with an angel's eyes? That he's, he's so holy he can't see the bad in anyone, even in Asaph. And perhaps he did need a Rivka to point him out as to the nature of what is um, happening. But having said that, again, this, we're blaming the parents for what happened. And it's very, very dangerous, I think, to reduce the book of Genesis, the Sefer Breshit, to a story that you can somehow solve if only Isaac and Rebecca, if only Yitzchak and Rivka had an hour with the marriage counselor, everything would have been fine and the rest of the story would not have happened. Is something deeper going on here? Well, there is, of course, the possibility that they did do something wrong. But... Rav Samet points out, he says, listen, this, nowhere, this is Rabbi Samet writing about this. Nowhere does scripture indicate that there is something more reprehensible the actions of Rivka and Yaakov. This is striking. Indeed, Yaakov's only objection seems to be a fear of being discovered. When we reach the end of the story, at least in chapter 27, the place where these changes in the family structure are first presented, the narrative does not give a feeling of traumatic family watershed, but rather provides a picture of appeasement and calming. Now, he's talking about the fact that Yaakov was able to go to Isaac right before he leaves to um, flees his brother and receive a blessing as if nothing has happened and no words passed between them. A very, very enigmatic scene. However, I have to strongly disagree with Rabbi Samet here. First of all, to say that nothing has happened, well, we know the reason that there are two reasons why Yaakov is fleeing. The first is, of course, the excuse that is given by Rebekah to Isaac he needs to find a proper wife. Look what Esau did. Look who Esau married. And for that, he goes and gets a blessing before he leaves. But isn't Esau planning to kill his brother as soon as he steps back on the in the land of Israel? He's just waiting for his father to die. He's a good son. Good sons don't kill their brothers and siblings while their father's still alive. Once he's dead, <coughs> forget it. He's gone. Also, I think on a deeper level, to say that the Torah does not consider reprehensible seems is a misunderstanding of how the Torah punishes. You're right. Yaakov does not have the earth open in front of him. There are no plagues like frogs and blood. There's not a flood. There's not attacked by a lion. But all the vicissitudes and difficulties he faces through the rest of his life, you can't tell me that that's not a punishment for what happens to him. He's left his tranquil existence. More than that, We'll give one very simple example, all right? Yaakov, of course, within a couple verses of arriving at Lavan, finds himself swindled, tricked, fooled. And the Midrash describes it so beautifully. First of all, can you imagine Yaakov waking up the next morning and discovering Leah's there, and he turns to Leah, daughter to the swindler, daughter to the deceiver, why do you deceive me? Leah said, me? What about you? Why did you 
did not deceive your father? Now you say, why did you deceive me? Did your father not say your brother came treacherously? Meaning Leah throws back his actions in his face according to Midrashic tradition. And similarly, there's another Midrash that describes, you know, the way Lavan speaks to Yaakov. When Yaakov says, how could you cheat me? How could you take Rachel and replace her with Leah? And Lavan calmly replies, I imagine so smugly in our place, maybe not where you come from, but in our place, we don't put the younger before the older. Yaakov, who has taken advantage of somebody who cannot see to put the younger before the older, now, when the situation where he cannot see, finds himself with the older and not the younger in front of him. Such beautiful irony with the text is midak negin midah. Now, midak negin midah, measure for measure, is not just a delicious sense of irony and punishment, but it also points out this happened to the person because of what he did previously. It's educational. It teaches. And it helps people grow. Ultimately, as we're going to talk about next week, Yaakov is perhaps one of the most honest figures in Tanakh. Titen Amit Yaakov. All the laws of how a worker should work for his employer are learned from Yaakov's behavior to Lavan. Yet here, at this point in the story, Yaakov has some clearly confronted with people tricking him as a result of his previous tricking of his brother. Nechama Lebutz also brings a fascinating medrash. Anyone who says that the Holy One, blessed be he, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, is lenient, He'll lose his life. You can't say God overlooks his stuff easily. Rather, God is patient, but eventually even God collects his debts. Yaakov caused Yitzhak to admit just a single cry. As it is written, he cried a great and bitter cry of Yitzhak. Where was this repaid to him? In Shushan, the capital. When Esau's descendant, Haman, is manages to convince Hashverosh to give the decree to destroy the Jews, it's written, and Mordechai cried, a great and bitter cry. What a fascinating medrash that the whole story of Purim, the whole hatred of the Jews, ultimately stems from what Yaakov did to Esau. I want to present two final approaches, however. Approach number one is really based on a very careful reading of the text. And it goes as follows. There are three blessings given in this story. Blessing A is given to Yaakov, dressed as Esau, meaning that Isaac, Yitzchak, is aware who is that, or thinks that it's Esau in front of him. Blessing number two is given to Esau, with Isaac aware that he's Esau, the second blessing. There's a final blessing at the end of the story, in which Isaac blesses Yaakov, knowing that he's Yaakov now. Now, in the first blessing, it says, May God give you the dew of the heaven and the fat of the earth, the abundance of new grain and wine. May people serve you and people bow down to you. Be a gvir lachecha. It doesn't mean master. It means somebody who's supportive of your brothers. Let your mother's sons bow to you. May curse be there, curse you, bless you, those who bless you. For the most part, this is a physical blessing. This does not have the sense of anything more than you've been a great son, you should be successful in life. Here's the keys to the Ferrari. Congratulations. It's the third, the second blessing is a variation of that, in which Isaac tries to redeem some of the ble- physical blessings for Esau. Your dwelling place will be the fat place of the earth, and the dew of the heaven from above. And notice now with Isaac blessing Esau, it's the earth that comes first, and not the heavens. You know, but when you come to the third blessing, Isaac to Jacob, it's very different in tone than the first blessing that he was giving to Esau. 
May God, may El Shaddai make you fertile, numerous. You should be some an assembly of peoples, he says. You should, And then he comes and says, May he grant you the blessing of Avram, you and your offspring, that you may possess the land. Two dimensions of blessing here. Many children and possession of the land for his descendants. This is what he calls blessing of Abraham. In other words, this is the spiritual blessing. This is the continuation of the covenant that was first forged with Abraham, that Abraham is passing on, that Isaac is passing on to Jacob, aware that it's Jacob. Isaac knew who Esau was according to this approach. Isaac knew that Esau was not worthy of being the spiritual heir to Abraham's tradition. All that Isaac was due was trying to give Esau some physical wealth, some physical blessing. It had nothing to do with the spiritual blessing. This was, and this, again, points towards Rivka's misunderstanding what Isaac was intending to do. Again, a breakdown in communication. Finally, my own approach, and I've heard people argue with this, where I was just speaking with Rabbi Michael Hatton. I love living in the Lone Shfu. You get to argue with people about Tanakh in the post office. And Rabbi Haddon and I have had this ongoing dispute about the very nature of blessings, and we'll explain what I, I'll explain what I mean in a minute. I'm trying to find a way in which we can understand this story without resorting to a breakdown in communication between Rebecca and Isaac, between Yitzchak and Rivka. Is there any way to do that? So let's suggest that they've argued about this. They know who Esav is. They know who Yaakov is. And Rebecca says to Isaac, listen, Jacob's going to be out in the wide world. He's going to need physical blessings too. You can't leave him purely spiritual. And Isaac says, no, no, that'll be Esav's job and he'll do it. Really, Esav's a good kid at heart. I know him. He hasn't fooled me. He hasn't fooled you? He's been fooling you all this time? No, 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 no. Don't you tell me that. And you can imagine like Rivka adamant. Yitzchak, you've been fooled. You don't understand who your children are. You've And Isaac says to her, no, I haven't. I know who they are. So Rivka comes up and hatches the following plan. It's obvious that Isaac's going to find out. In fact, according to the text, he finds out almost the very moment Yaakov leaves and Esau comes in. At that very moment, he discovers it. Does the blessings that were given have any validity? Can you steal a blessing? Is it like Harry Potter or a spell where you say, Spirly Amos or... Blessing Amos, or all of a sudden, you get it. It doesn't matter if it's aimed at the right person. The Ramban seems to suggest that that's possible. He says so that when Yitzchak or Rebekah says to Yaakov, he's going to bless Esau before God, because God is a source of blessing. And Isaac, in fact, is just a conduit. So receiving this blessing may make him receive it, even if it's not the intention. However, there's another approach, and that's the approach of, I think, Rashi, who says, when Isaac says to Esau, he stole your blessing, and he's blessed, meaning that that blessing did not count until Isaac then repeats, and I'm going to give him the blessing that I gave him. You can't steal blessings. Blessings are not magic spells. So what is the whole point of this whole operation? Rivka just has to prove to Yitzchak, Isaac, for a brief period of time, you're so confident that you can't be fooled? Try this on for size. See how well you know your children. She doesn't tell him that, of course. That would destroy the test. But all of a sudden, in comes Yaakov, and he's able to act like Asa for a brief moment, maybe 15 minutes, half an hour. And Yitzchak is unaware, even though he's got suspicions, but he eventually decides, no, no, this is Asa. I can't be fooled. And then it turns out he can be. And one can imagine him saying, well, if I can be fooled now, 
by Yaakov, the more innocent of the two brothers. Perhaps Asaph's been fooling me as well. Perhaps my wife is right. And therefore he rethinks everything and makes the decision, I'm going with my wife's intuition. With those thoughts in mind, it's a difficult, difficult story. As mentioned earlier, to suggest that Yaakov and Rivka escape any punishment is beyond the realm of the text. The text makes it so clear that Rivka will never see Yaakov again. She sends him away. Yaakov is going to have to now live, ironically, as Esau, a man in the field, working in the field, where people manipulate him, and he's not the manipulator. Lavan first, then his wives will manipulate him, then his children in the two weeks from now, in the story of Dina, and the story of Joseph. Everybody seems to be um, playing games behind his back. He's created a spiritual reality, which he has to, um, and yet he has to maintain the straight and narrow path that is the hallmark of a true child or grandchild of Avram Avinu. With those thoughts in mind, and the challenge, and looking forward to discussing these challenges in the upcoming podcast, Shabbat Shalom to everybody.